Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our latest podcast of New Books Network in Anthropology. I'm Yadong Li, a host of New Books Network and also a PhD student in Anthropology at Tulane University. Philanthropy, divine worship, and time. These are three quite different but equally very important topics in social science and humanities. In his most recent book, Dr. Konstantinos Reticus examines how the economic has been reconstituted to better serve goals of redistributive justice in Java, Indonesia. This is also a book bridging anthropology with continental post-structuralist philosophy to arrive at a general theory of everyday economic practice as a temporal phenomena. So in short, it is a book examining some classic anthropological issues through the lens of time. This fantastic new book, A Synthesize of Time, Zakat, Islamic Microfinance, and the Question of the Future in 21st Century Indonesia is published in 2020 by Pilbrim Macmillan. And thank you for coming today, Constance. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about the book. Yeah, well, it's it's so delightful for me to see you today and chat with you about this book. So it is not a you know most new book, but you know it's your most recent book. So Constance is reader in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at SOAS University of London. So I'm a SOAS alumni. When I was a student at SOAS University of London, Constance was a director of the MRS program, and we had a lot of discussion about post-structuralist philosophy, about temporality, and I received so many helpful instruction from Constance. I also got very useful book list, I think, uh, but uh, I do not have enough time to read all of them. I only read a very small portion of them, and I'm very sorry about it. And personally, I thought a synthesis of time very helpful because my research is quite related to temporality, and I really admire the writing style of this book to, you know, to combine the philosophical theories into uh, ethnographic observations. So this is why I really hope to introduce Constance's book to wider audiences. So I have talked too much, I think, Constance. So how about we start from your personal background? I know you got your PhD degree from the University of Edinburgh, and in your dissertation, I think you you mainly focused on becoming about, you know, about personhood in East Java. So can you let us know what brought you to anthropology and to Java, Indonesia? Uh, what brought me to anthropology was a good fortune. So uh, it was just a new department in Greece, in Athens, that had opened up the uh, year I was sitting for the national exams for the University of Edric. And it was a subject that was uh, looked very, very interesting, along with uh, 
psychology and culture studies. So the way the exam system runs uh, brought this kind of result, uh, which I embraced. So I did my undergraduate degree in social anthropology and social policy at Pantheon University in Athens. And then for four years, and then I did my master's in social anthropology at Kent University. At that point, Kent was, the Department of Anthropology was uh, a, a key hub for studies of Southeast Asia. So that was the very first time I got acquainted with Indonesia. And I wrote my MA dissertation on Indonesia. And then I went to Edinburgh to continue uh, under the supervision of uh, Janet Karsten. Uh, with uh, Indonesia, and I did, we did a year and a half of fieldwork in East Java. I wrote the thesis and then it came out as a book with the title uh, Becoming uh, an Anthropological Approach to Understandings of the Person in Java. And it did feature the lens uh, quite extensively. Uh, I thought that I had, I was going to finish with the loose, uh, with the second research, which is the book we are going to talk about. Uh, however, it's, it's been uh, continuing for a very, very long time. And the more I'm reading, uh, the more uh, interested I am uh, in his work, but also uh, on Indonesia. Oh, I mean, I finished uh, uh, in 2003 from Edinburgh, the PhD, and then I spent a year as a postdoc at Sussex. And the year after that, 2004, I joined SOFS. So, this is uh, getting close to the 20th anniversary of my stay at Sons. Look, very fascinating. Although I have known some parts of your academic journey, it's fascinating to know more about it, um, especially before Edinburgh. So I think let's turn, it's time to turn to the project of this book. So I think time, economy, and religion are three, you know, pillars of this book. So from a very practical perspective, I want to know when you started your fieldwork, what was your original focus of research and what brought other focuses into your research? Well, the, the beginning of uh, the research on uh, these issues uh, started from a very different uh, point. The point was to investigate the subjectivities of donors uh, who give either zakat or sedeka, and they provide for the, for the poor in Indonesia. So it was much more a study on subjectivity, on ethical self-fashioning. This is, this is how the whole project started. And it was also a study about what the Asia development bank at that point called the development of the gift market, gift market inverted commerce in Indonesia founding this, 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 uh, concept, gift market, potentially interesting. So I wanted to see how the cultivation of a certain self as generous and kind was happening at the same time as the, the series of institutions were being created in Indonesia, uh, similar society bodies to create an institutional support for the cultivation of these selves. Um, this is how it started. Uh, but it uh, became something something quite quite different. So the the emphasis of subjectivity on subjectivity is no longer there. Uh, and in terms of institutions, 
there is an emphasis on institutions uh, and actors in the field of, uh, of zakat and Islamic medical finance, but this time it has been everything has been framed in terms of uh, uh, time and the synthesis of time, and uh, this happened kind of during during field work, but also after coming back. Uh, um, and processing, thinking about the implications of of the ethnography, um, in terms also of what was happening in the world at that point, which was the post two thousand and eight uh, financial crisis, and the way that uh, sovereign debt was being discussed, uh, and austerity measures were being undertaken across the uh, across Europe and 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 the US. So it's very much a reflection both on, on ethnography of, 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 of Indonesia, but also across what was happening in the world at the general kind of level uh, out of the crisis or the opportunities that were created uh, in financial capitalism out of the 2008 crisis. Exactly, exactly. I can definitely see some back and forth and also to see some combination of structural transformation and also your you know, your personal interest is also changing. But yeah, it's very fascinating. So about this book, A Synthesize of Time is definitely not an easy read, I would say, because apart from ethnographic disc de descriptions and anthropological series, you have also included many philosophical series in the book. And I think in different chapters, you draw on different post-structuralist philosophies perspective and then use them to deepen your analysis of your ethnographic observations. So my question is, who are the expected readers of your book? Well, this is a very big question that is very difficult to answer. I mean, I have always tried to, to write as simple and as clear as possible uh, in terms of communicating what I'm, I'm thinking about uh, certain things. So for me, I. Though the book might be difficult in terms of making specific demands on the readers, I think any kind of person with an open mind should be able to follow and engage with, with the book without any prior knowledge of either anthropology or philosophy or, or Islamic studies. I mean, at least this is, this is how I'm imagining my audience uh, when I'm sitting down to, to write something. Uh, why? It's not easy, but at the same time, I think it doesn't take a lot of things for, for, for granted in terms of the background, the the baggage the, the readers should, should bring to the, the discussion. Uh, on the other hand, of course, it is a kind of an academic, kind of scholarly uh, um, work that is addressed to anthropologists, economists, people who are working on development, people who are working on uh, Islamic studies, on Islam, Indonesia, and beyond. Uh, now, it's philosophers also find it uh, interesting. Uh, that would make me especially, especially happy. And I think they should. I mean, uh, since, you know, the people, uh, the philosophers it's, uh, it's engaging with, 
uh, Darida and the youth were reading quite a lot of anthropology and they couldn't do otherwise because the structure of the Levi Strauss was very, very important at the time. They were one starting up their career as, as philosophers. So uh, because they are reading anthropology so carefully and so closely, I think it's also an obligation of anthropologists to be reading the work of these philosophers the, because their work is only really informed by anthropology. And uh, I think this is this is quite obvious in the Deepus. It's quite obvious in uh, Darida's work as well. And of, of course, Foucault, Foucault is kind of an ethnographer of the past. And he provides ethnographic descriptions of the past of the finest uh, detail. So I think there is there is a lot of common ground with with the way Foucault kind of conducts his uh, genealogical studies. Fantastic. I think personally, your book. Uh, I'm not a philosopher, and I'm not you know now I'm not a professional anthropologist. But basically, I think the ethnographic material and a vignette in this book you know, exactly help me to understand some philosophical concepts. So I think it is very helpful. And about the structure of this book, so the chapters in this book are not framed chronologically, but deal with separate topics and dialogue with one or more theories in each chapter. So what was your purpose in framing the book in this way? So the, the way the framing has come about is it has it's the result of identifying the key actors in the field of zakat management, Islamic microfinance. There are specific, three specific actors. It's the state, Indonesian state, uh, the way laws have been formulated and enacted. And this often happens in conversation with Islamic jurisprudence. So Islamic jurists, Islamic scholars, and the way they have framed specific concerns that have found their way or not to a national laws is one body of actors. Another body of actors is civil society organizations, uh, bodies which have been created for the purpose of, uh, of managing uh, Islamic donations uh, and zakat, the zakat management bodies, uh, and of course, their donors, their staff, professional and volunteers, and recipients as they come together through specific programs. And then there is a third category of actors, uh, we can talk more about them, who I'm calling solicitors. These are anonymous uh, 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 actors who act under are covered to accomplish specific things. Uh, so this is this is a third category. And to me, this category is quite important because it defines objectification. So uh, it's something that I have tried to achieve both in the first book with under the concept of becoming to find a way to 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 to, to conduct ethnographic description, which avoids are falling into the trap of objectification. And this time, this 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 uh, desire has been very much uh, pursued through through this concept of solicitors and solicitors. Great. I can see, now I can see it's a very thoughtful design because it continues your previous 
focus in your you know previous project, but it also you know seeks to present a comprehensive picture of Islamic economy because you in different chapters you focus on different participants. I think it's very helpful for the ethnographic writers to learn about. So about the keyword of this book, this is an ethnography, I think, first of all, about Islamic economy. And a keyword in Islamic economy is zakat. So based on my reading, I think zakat is a kind of wealth transfer, but with very strong Islamic roots. So as our audiences may not know much about uh, Islamic tradition and about contemporary Indonesia, could you please give us some information about this term and tell us how zakat plays a very important role in Islamic economy in today's Indonesia? Well, I, well the very first thing is to, to know that most studies that have to do with Islamic, the creation of an Islamic economy have to do with uh, the buying sector and the ban on the charging of, of interest. Uh, zakat uh, is a different pillar to this, I think it's much more important uh, because it's uh, zakat is one of the five pillars of the faith that in uh, order of priority. So it has to do with worship. It's a ritual uh, which uh, involves the transfer of wealth uh, for the love of God. It constitutes an act of worship, as I said. And the question uh, now, uh, in terms of its articulation with the Islamic economy, is the ways in which uh, contemporary institutions and contemporary bodies, and uh, including scholarship, have problematized uh, the way this transfer of wealth uh, needs to be conducted in order for uh, an Islamic economy to be founded on Islamic ideas about justice. So for a lot of Islamic scholars and Islamic economies, Akkad is understood as an instrument of justice, and an instrument that when put into practice, it would create, uh, it will alleviate poverty, and it will create uh, prosperity. So uh, these concerns about justice, about uh, alleviation of property, poverty, and Prosperity are key in the way it has been put into practice in a modern context. And in this modern context, we're talking about not the zakat fitra, which is the usual zakat most, most people associate uh, with Islam, which is something that is, is a levy on all believers, and it's paid at the end of Ramadan, but zakat mal, which is zakat on property, and this category of zakat mal has come to be uh, revised quite heavily in recent decades uh, with the addition of new forms of wealth, new forms of property, which must be subject to zakat. So while classic categories uh, uh, will fall into agriculture, uh, the produce of agriculture and trade, uh, these days, um, lots of Islamic jurists from the 6th and the 70s onwards have uh, included lots of new categories of wealth like wages or stocks into the categories that require to be subject to zakat. 
So you know, the the idea behind making zakat a formal component of an Islamic economy is to amass a very substantial body of wealth that is then going to be most of it is going to be well, dedicated to the alleviation of uh, poverty. But in a way, and this is quite important, that is not, at least in Indonesia, the emphasis is not just on giving, you know, funds to alleviate or provide immediate relief, but to provide funds in a way that empowers the poor so that they can set up businesses or they can pursue uh, schooling uh, that is going to lift them out of poverty in the long term. Uh, and this is where uh, uh, this is uh, the, the whole the whole thing becomes quite quite important because there is a certain alignment between the zakat as an instrument and the uh, way that empowerment is being understood in a global uh, financial and neoliberal kind of uh, uh, way. Well, thank you, thank you, Constant, for this very detailed. Uh, elaboration. So, Constant, I know your research interests and a theoretical orientation are greatly influenced by the French philosopher Deleuze, so especially his creative understanding of time. And uh, as I mentioned before, time is a key theme and analytical length of this book. So what inspires you to analyze what you observe in your fieldwork from the perspective of time? And could you please tell us what is the synthesis of time? So I think the the inspiration uh, came a few years, a couple of years after uh, Civil War. Uh, the, the 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 question for me, what I was uh, uh, focusing on, following the institutions I was collaborating with, was uh, Islamic microfinance. So in Islamic microfinance, as in other forms of microfinance, you have an creation of debt for the purposes of uh, wealth creation. And uh, I was trying to understand why debt uh, was such an important instrument. Um, and this kind of coincided with uh, the effects of the 2008 financial crisis, where it had become quite obvious that debt it was a very important instrument for regulating our everyday lives uh, here and across across the world. So I was trying to understand what was significant about that. And the debt was important also within some vision horizon, a religious horizon, because uh, sins are uh, debits and uh, good works out as credit, and this is going to be balanced out uh, to be judged on Judgment Day. So at some point, I started understanding that the whole question about debt has to do with the importance of time. And it's about how do you secure a specific future? Uh, how do you make a specific future arrive? How do you uh, block? specific potentials from realizing themselves in the future, and how do you preserve 
a specific form of the present in the future? Or how do you make the transition uh, from you, you you secure the the the, the present returning in the future? So I remember I was on I was taking bus number thirty going back home uh, when I realized that and the news came to mind immediately because uh, I had I knew his work on difference of repetition and then I started uh, trying to find out how I can bring the loose and difference repetition and see this of time together with this idea about death and the future. Yes, and the result is basically the book. Uh, but the also the good thing with the book is that it brings also the Ridar and Foucault into the, the conversation. And this is important because it contextualizes uh, the Louvre at the same time because this the less the loose um Foucault and Darita in my mind they kind of they go kind of together. They are very different as as philosophers, but I think they respond to the to 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 to, to the same challenge that Friedrich Nietzsche uh, set out in the nineteenth century and also they respond to the end of the Enlightenment. So it was good for me to be able to contextualize at the loose in this way uh, and kind of do kind of, if I can say, an ethnographic study of philosophy of the 60s and the 70s in this way. So I brought the three philosophers as, as an ethnographer and I did the same thing with them as I did with the material on, on Indonesia, trying to create connections uh, between the three of them and trying to create connections uh, with the material from, from Indonesia. So um, that's, that's, that's the way I approach philosophy uh, as, as an ethnographer of, of the line of uh, philosophy. Philosophy has a social life. Philosophy occurs in a specific time and place. And we need to understand why certain thoughts, thoughts are being thought at specific uh, temporal and spatial conjunctures, and that's 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 how the kind of uh, the book and on kind of came about. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you said. And as we have already talked about, uh, Deleuze his interpretation of time and also the three types of synthesized time. So let's you know talk more about it. So in your book, the first one of is the first one of synthesis of time is the synthesis of habit, the second is the synthesis of memory, and the third is the synthesis of eternal return. So basically, I'd like to hear more about uh, this typology. So basically, it's based on Deleuze's understanding, but actually you applied this understanding to more specific uh, ethnographic materials. And could you please tell us how, how do you use this framework in your analysis of Indonesian and Islamic microfinance? Yeah, it's the book is actually a modification of the three synthesis of time of the uh, loose. I mean, as you said, the loose is talking about Hume and the habit as the first synthesis of time that is placing an emphasis on uh, the present. And then there is Bergson 
and the synthesis of time that is performed by memory. And then there is the synthesis of time of the future. Uh, this comes from the internal return of Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, now, uh, I have modified this to fit the actors identified as important. So the first synthesis of time is the, is the synthesis performed by the state and is the synthesis of time uh, conducted with the past as being dominant. Uh, now, that discussion is taking a lot of inspiration from Darida and his uh, force of law, the way he reflects on Benjamin's article about violence and the way he tries to decouple justice from the law. Uh, so the first synthesis of talent, according to the book, is performed by the state through law and the way the law and the state tie justice to their purposes. And the second synthesis of time has to do with the present and it's very much performed by the civil society um, institutions, the Zakat management bodies, and how they try to bring about a future which preserves the present but gives it an improvement. So uh, it's about it's about improvement, about incremental improvement and uh, little bits of progress being performed by the way these uh, zakat management bodies uh, manage to uh, distribute zakat and other donations to the poor with an emphasis on them becoming entrepreneurs that will be able to lift themselves out of poverty bit by bit along a kind of longer or long-term kind of trajectory. And the third synthesis of time is the one that is performed by solicitors, the ones who do not accept gifts, but produce and take uh, wealth that belongs to them uh, in undercover and through anonymity. And this is the most appropriate, uh, I find, synthesis of time that brings about a future as radically different both from the present and the past. And it's different from the present but the, and the past because it affirms, it's a way of life, it's a way of uh, conducting wealth transfers, which has neither to do with a gift nor, nor with commodity. And he, uh, instead, uh, it affirms the otherness of the solicitors, the otherness of the divine, and the otherness of the future, because it is very much reliant on a taking uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and an elimination of our identitarian politics. Uh, so by the solicitors uh, conducting themselves undercover, and by remaining anonymous, they, they, they set up a certain uh, block to an emphasis on identity and an emphasis on gift and an emphasis on commodity, an emphasis on exchange. They deny that wealth transfer that involves reciprocity. So they take symmetry out of the question 
and they make everything asymmetrical in order to create, to put in place such an interval that will block both the past and the violence of the state and the incremental improvements uh, of uh, civil society institutions from happening again in the future. So that's 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 the modification. That's the modification. Um, um, it's and at the same time, this is this is this is what the book has to offer to uh, philosophers or uh, those who are specializing on the loose. It's 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 what anthropology what anthropology uh, uh, returns, uh, uh, even though it has not been solicited uh, such a return um, to um, this body of of knowledge and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was very, very lucky to have uh, the basic um, idea kind of uh, um, confirmed by specialists of uh, the less when the article came out from the general Deeps studies in 2015. Uh, it was it was quite an important moment for me uh, to have this uh, dialogue with them. But that allowed me to take things a bit further with, with the book. I, I needed to draw that on putting on, on solid ground. Because I'm not I'm not I'm not I've not been trained in philosophy. I'm, I'm just interested in this. Yeah, but I think this is the most amazing part because when you talk about uh, the synthesis of, of uh, eternal return, you introduce the concept of solicitor. And here I think is the most theoretically ambitious attempt in this book because you not only connect the philosophical theories to uh, ethnographic observation, but also connect three philosophers uh, from Nietzsche to Deleuze and also Derrida. And here I think it's a good time to talk about Derrida. So basically Derrida's insights on time are highly based on his review of Gift, which is definitely a classic topic in anthropology, and his critique on the uh, metaphysic of uh, presence. So basically, I think Derrida's deconstructive approach is very useful for us to find the cracks in solid and taken for granted relationship and concepts. So how do you follow Derrida's deconstructive approach in your book, in your analysis? Could you please introduce your, you know, your practice in your book? So the, the thing is that uh, the basic text of Derrida uh, that questions the anthropology of the gift, Marcel Moss, but also the distros, is given time. But in order, it took me some, some time to be able to come to terms with it. And I only, I think, came to terms with it after I read his voice and phenomenon. So a book that came out many two decades before, I think in 68, and came out together with grammatology. And in the in Voice and Phenomenon, he's talking about Edmund Husserl and the way that Edmund Husserl uh, both kind of confirmed the metaphysics of presence so through his emphasis on uh, uh, the internal speech act, the internal monologue, and, and, and his emphasis on the immediacy of meaning. But also by Derrida showing a certain departure from this metaphysics of presence in the 
thought of Edmund Cousin, when Cousin uh, came to conceptualize the passing of time as as contingent on the time splitting itself between a past that is uh, elapsing and a future that is yet to arrive. So this this splitting of time kind of uh, made presence, the, the metaphysics of presence again kind of problematic. So I had to read what I read on given time the critique of the gift in line of voice and phenomenon. And Darida is also conducting a critique of Moss and anthropology and Levistros and the whole idea of reciprocity along a temporal kind of register. Again, where she says that uh, as long as the gift is kind of uh, subjected to reciprocity, we will never know what a gift is. The gift as a category remains unthinkable because it is subject to symmetry. It is subject to a return. And for him, he says basically that in order to make the gift thinkable again, we need to make it contingent on a forgetting of the passing of the gift and a forgetting of this forget. So you need a double forgetting in order to make gift thinkable. And again, this it makes time a uh, foundation to uh, the conduct and the understanding of the gift. Now, the problem with this, I understood it to be that uh, the way that Rida was reading Baudelaire's uh, counterfeit story, uh, the counterfeit money story, and later on the way she was reading uh, the, 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 the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham, uh, everything was hidden on the donor. There, 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 there is a certain alignment between the and the anthropology of the gift with the privileging of the donor's perspective. We are constantly called to attend to the donor rather than the recipient. The recipient is always secondary to it. So then I went back to Moss and then I went back to Malinowski and I found certain passages in the studies which have not received appropriate attention. These passages, uh, the gift is made contingent on the performance of specific spells. And the spells produce the gift because they are forcing specific people to part with their wealth and give it to the recipient. So the recipient, in a certain way, is producing the gift by casting these spells against the donor. So it for the recipient is forcing the donor to give a gift, which is no longer a gift because it's not given freely. Yeah. So this started this made me think about specific incidences during fieldwork. And this instance is basically they say that so that wealth disappears if the person is not a pious Muslim, if the person who is not paying zakat regularly, is if the person is not conducting his business in a pious manner, uh, his or her or their wealth uh, is often subject to money. 
So um, I wanted to understand this disappearance, and the disappearance is usually attributed to an actor acting in stealth to remove wealth, possibly as an act which is positive in the eyes of God, because such a person has proven himself not to be biased and thus not to be uh, uh, entrusted with with wealth from much slowly. So these transfers of wealth made were conducted neither in the shape of the gift nor in the shape of commodity. And this is where this idea of solicitors has come about in terms of naming the actors that perform this transfer of wealth which conforms neither to gift nor to commodity, an act which is forcefully implemented, but it's also positive in the eyes of of God. So out of this uh, emerged the idea of positing a critique for both the anthropology of the gift and the anthropology of commodity exchange. Because they both privilege exchange, they, they reciprocity symmetry, but not in a way that revolves around forgetting, but in a way that makes the future the most important dimension of uh, this act, because they do not make the same return. They do not make either the gift or the commodity return, but something else which remains an open question. Yeah. So they 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 are acts of wealth transfer that go against exchange, they go against the contract. Nobody has any contract with anybody else. Nobody makes a promise of, of a return. It's a one act complete in and of itself that very moment. Mm-hmm. And the force and the stealth and the anonymity with which it is uh, conducted, I think, is one way of thinking about how a future otherwise can come about. Because both gift and commodity, they generate a repetition of the same. A gift calls for a counter gift again and again and again. So it reproduces itself. A commodity also reproduces itself because you change commodities in the, in the marketplace. There is no way out of it. So these forceful acts of wealth transfer by anonymous actors is an opportunity to open the possibility of thinking of uh, an alternative economy, which is not based on the change. And this is what we know since the uh, basically 16th or 17th century with uh, Rousseau and Thomas Hobbes. Uh, maybe all these ideas have not been put in the book. The book has a companion, and the companion is the introduction to a special section of how, which is dedicated to Adam Smith, and that special section lays out uh, this other story that was not that did not become part of, of the book for for very very for reasons of space basically, and also. Legibility, a book can take a certain burden, can carry a certain burden, cannot carry everything. So I had to split uh, 
things uh, to a certain extent to make uh, the book manageable. But that's 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 the long story uh, cut cut short. It's it's the the occasion for thinking about uh, conducting economy the economy in a manner that is neither uh, succumbs to the gift nor to to commodity. And the problem has always been that you know anthropology has valorized the gift as as a critique of commodity. When actually this is this is a pair, they always go together. And the most successful business when we're looking to convert their wealth into 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 foundations and that unleavened poverty. So uh, these these two things, I think they have been misplaced in opposition. They they need to think of as a pair that always goes together, and that we need to find a way to to disrupt this this. Uh, are about uh, and dominates our lives. Marvelous, because I just realized there is a double solicitation here. The first one is you analyze your interlocutor's practice as a kind of uh, soliciting. The second is your analysis itself is a solicitation of previous anthropological understanding of gift commodity relationship i think yeah it's so i think this interview is very meaningful it's very useful for me because it also brings me many insights about your book to you know every time i read this book i can get some new source so thank you for it it's for you to say that (laughs) exactly because i have never you know um i understand there what you said about your interlocutors act uh, practice at solicitation, but I have never thought about your writing itself is a kind of soliciting of previous anthropological literature. So yeah, it's very insightful. And so basically, this book is also part of the deconstructive, oh, you know, you know, project. You know, following Derrida. Yes. Yeah, I mean, if if there is a critique of Derrida in its specifics, mm-hmm. there is an affirmation of. That it does project in its generality, so I don't mean it as a as 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 uh, fighting for with 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 that it does. It's quite quite the opposite. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, as we have talked much about Deleuze and Derrida, let's talk about the anthropologist's relationship with philosophy. So in the last chapter, you mentioned today's anthropology has not fully appreciated and explored time as the irreducible sign of an overflowing excess. So can you tell us why this is important and what kind of transformation or changes it will bring to anthropology if we give further attention on time? Um, I think the idea is, is quite simple, that I think anthropology has thought about difference in a very spatial manner. So because it has associated difference with culture, a culture with territory, it has come to reduce difference to a spatial phenomenon. And at the same time, it has allowed history to appropriate time. But history itself has talked about time as in terms of 
in terms of a sequence, in terms of a sequence of events, in terms of a sequence of big men performing great deeds for better or worse. And of course, these changes with Foucault, his genealogy, and that's something I think we should all learn from. But at the same time, uh, what I would like to see uh, is anthropology moving to a conceptualization of difference, not in spatial, but in temporal, in temporal terms. And this has become very clear to me. I've been uh, going to Indonesia for field work since the late 1990s. Indonesia is not the same place it was in now, it's not the same place it was in 1988. Uh, there are vast, vast differences. But I have also come to realize that uh, in order to encounter difference, I do not need to travel to Indonesia. That uh, my encounter with alterity cannot and should not be contingent on this special uh, um, journey. So, and uh, this is where the next project comes into things. Uh, basically, by asking anthropology to reconfigure its foundation from an spatial understanding of reference to a temporal one, it, we also need to reconfigure uh, how to uh, conceptualize alterity in a non-spatial um, manner. And uh, this is exactly what I'm, 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 the next project is, is trying to address and to a certain way achieve. Great. It's very happy to know that your next project is still in the continuation of your exploration of time. So throughout the book, your analysis draws inspiration from three philosophies, from uh, Derrida, from Deleuze, and from Foucault. So based on your experience of writing this book, how could anthropology and philosophy engage in effective dialogue in the future? And in particular, what is the role of uh, ethnography in this interdisciplinary dialogue or collaboration? Um, the, the work of these three philosophers is already informed by anthropology. And they knew the work of Marcel Bosch, they knew the work of Lévi-Strauss, Pierre Clastre, the work of... Um, Edmund Leeds, uh, I mean, you know, it, this is this is quite obvious. Um, the important for me is that um, to be able, as an anthropologist, I need to be able to fill in a certain control of the words, of the concepts uh, I'm using. And in order to be able to be, to fill in control, that I know what I'm talking about, um, I have found out that I need to engage with philosophy because philosophers are experts in creating, elaborating, uh, advancing concepts which have a specific history and they take them in specific directions. So in order to be able, I cannot, I do not, subscribe to the position that ethnography is a neutral uh, description of what we witness because uh, such a naive view uh, bypasses 
the cost acuity model of language. And because we use language to communicate with one another, we need to be able to know as much as fully as possible uh, what is exactly meant by the words we are using to conduct ethnographic description. So it's all in the aid of ethnography that um, reading and deploying philosophy, the 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 the, 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 the objective is to uh, conduct ethnographic description with as little as possible assumptions and presuppositions. And you can arrive at this one to know fully well what is the baggage a specific word carries with uh, every time you, you use it. So I do not see how it's possible not to engage with philosophy as ethnographers. Yeah. Um, in order to be able, and that's that's before we reach the point of uh, trying to conduct a cultural critique. I'm just putting things on the level of good ethnographic description, which is description with as little as possible in terms of uh, assumptions and presuppositions. Now, if we want to go into the second objective, that of conducting cultural critique, then we need the aid of philosophy as another venture which also conduct, conducts its own cultural critique, not from the point of view of ethnography, but from a different disciplinary practice that has to do with reading and uh, reading, doing and undoing philosophical kind of uh, text. So again, I cannot see how you can do anthropology you can do without without philosophy for the second objective as well. Uh, you need the assistance of philosophy in order to further your objective of conducting cultural critique. You need you need as many alliances as as possible to help you uh, along along the way. But the same thing I have also found Islamic jurisprudence to be an extremely fertile and a field of engagement. I have learned Many, many things have taken lots of inspiration from the way Islamic scholars understand zakat at different contexts for different reasons. And it has helped me a lot to uh, position the ethnography of what I saw happening on an everyday level. Um, so this uh, Islamic jurisprudential reasoning, I have found it extremely, extremely interesting. Uh, these days, I find film criticism or film studies uh, equally equally important. So I will say that um, the disciplinary we need to undiscipline ourselves by learning to do transdisciplinary work. I'm not in favor of discipline, either in the guise of disciplinary practices or in the guise of scholarly practices which are also conducted in a disciplinary way. So we need to undiscipline ourselves and undiscipline anthropology uh, as much as possible for the same reasons. Exactly. And also, I think the boundaries within philosophy, I'm very looking forward to seeing a future ethnography could combine 
non-Western background philosophy and ethnographic observation. But, you know, I cannot imagine it now, but maybe in the future some uh, ethnographers will do it. And definitely your book is definitely a very inspiring attempt um, to combine the continental philosophy and anthropological theories. So, also, yeah, I also found yeah. the work of Mary Strater and the various the castle in this, in this is extremely philosophical. So I'm, 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 I'm not quite sure where would I draw the, the lines. They, they could equally be uh, on the side of philosophy uh, because the, 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 they are able to uh, draw specific uh, metaphysical conclusions on the basis of ethnography. And of course, this is perfectly legitimate. Why can you draw metaphysical conclusions on the basis of reading Plato? Mm-hmm. Not on the basis of uh, reading Islamic jurisprudence in Indonesia today. And I don't think it makes any, any difference. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and it's especially um, you know, significant because you quoted lots of Indonesians, writers and philosophers and econo- economists' work in your book. And we can see in the future there will be more and more overlap between this you know, theories and philosophical thoughts and also in the uh, anthropological work. So as we are approaching the end of today's podcast, the final question is, what projects are you working on now and what's next? I know you are doing very exciting research on films, which is also a major topic in Deleuze, his, on the, his writing. So please share with us your current and future projects. Yeah, as I said, the the, the next like project not the next, the project I'm currently engaged in has to do with uh, cinema. Uh, I've been uh, going to cinema for many, many years, lots of, lots, lots of, lots of movies as, as somebody, as a friend of cinema. But uh, after COVID, this has taken a much more uh, serious uh, dimension. And uh, I'm interested in the work of a specific Greek director, uh, renowned amongst the uh, those who know about, about cinema, uh, Theo Angelopoulos. And I'm very interested in him because he has a very strong uh, ethnographic perspective in terms of the way he films Greece. He conveys this very strong ethnographic perspective uh, by saying that his films are about the whereabout, uh, the other Greeks. And I'm very interested in how he goes about accomplishing this othering. Um, he's, he's, he's very important to me because he, I grew up with his films. Uh, I saw his, the film uh, I like best the very first semester. I was a student in the anthropology department in Athens. So my starting of anthropology, my starting of uh, um, uh, getting to know his his work kind of took place at the same time. And also because uh, I think along with Alain René, he is a master of temporal manipulation or the synthesis of times uh, when it comes down to his films, especially the films of his first period. So I'm very much interested in um, pursuing uh, further this uh, anthropology of time through an anthropology of theory or anthropology of his 
works as well. And of course, you know, I mean, the less the less is is still a very important companion, uh, both of because of his difference repetition, but also the ways he takes difference repetition to a new level in, in his two volumes or in cinema. So uh, at the same time, I don't think I have finished with Indonesia either. I think I still have uh, unfinished beings with Indonesia. Uh, so um, we'll see how 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 Indonesia will get involved in this project. That's very important Indonesian films I I would like to write about as well. Jamile Wat Malam and Opera Jawa. These these are also so films I I find it incredibly rich and very very important. So at the moment the encounters I'm having uh, with alterity are conducted across uh, the space between the silver screen and the viewers in many places in in London. Other one and does not require me traveling, expect, expect going to the cinema or just uh, switching on the TV. Thank you, thank you. Definitely, I think cinema is a game of time and I, I, I can see you can have many interesting work on it and I'm very looking forward to your forthcoming work and I can't wait to have you back in the future to talk about it. So, Constance, it's always enjoyable to talk with you and thank you for your time. Thank you for coming to today's podcast. Thank you, Yadon. It's been a pleasure to be able to see you again and speak to you. Thank you. The Friday is all mine. And so today we talk about the new book by Comstas Reticus, uh, A Synthesize of Time, The Accord Islamic Microfinance, and The Question of the Future in 21st Century Indonesia. If you are interested in temporality, Islamic economy, philanthropy, and contemporary Indonesia, or you are interested in how anthropology and post-structuralist philosopher may come may you may have combination and contribute to each other you will not want to miss this book thank you for listening to new books network in anthropology and we will see you next time <laughs>